Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, Elizabeth City residents fight back after the DA declared the shooting death of Andrew Brown Jr. was justified. Mecklenburg County officials hold back funding and demand a better plan to improve student performance. And a bill to wrap rules around the teaching of race and history is on its way to the Senate. Join us in the conversation. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. This week, Pascatank County District Attorney Andrew Womble declared the April 21st shooting death of Andrew Brown Jr. by sheriff's deputies in Elizabeth City was justified. When weighing the degree of force used, a prosecutor must pay careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each particular case, including the severity of the crime at issue, whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of officers or others, and whether he is actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. Using these parameters, I find that the facts of this case clearly illustrate the officers who used deadly force on Andrew Brown Jr. did so reasonably and only when a violent felon used a deadly weapon to place their lives in danger. The family members of Andrew Brown Jr. and many in the community are very upset over this decision and additional actions are being planned in response. Let's start talking with our guest today, Kerwin Pittman, a community activist, and Jesse McCoy, supervising attorney for the Duke Law Civil Justice Clinic. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Kerwin, you have been protesting with community members in Elizabeth City from the beginning. And with the release of the full 45 seconds of footage and now the DA's decision, how are people feeling? Um, so people are frustrated, um, particularly in this community. Uh, so this community, this community um, are tired. And so this particular case shine light and injustice on this particular incident, but it's been a lot of incidents that didn't get um, the light of day or the publicity um, that has happened in this community. So they are used to corruption on many different levels and institution in this town. And I was just a sad thing to see um, these murders continuously happen and yet um, state sanctioned violence is justified against in the black and brown communities when we know is not justifiable. Now you mentioned additional incidents. What are you talking about? Can you share any of those? Um, so it has been particularly a lot of police brutality cases, a lot of cover-ups, um, a lot of corruption cases to where law enforcement in this particular town has been taking um, money, um, seizing different um, assets from individuals and not going through the correct process and giving individuals their due process. So when I say corruption, I mean this particular town and county is deeply entrenched in uh, racist tenants principles, but also deeply entrenched in corruption um, in the criminal justice system. And those are strong accusations. So are you taking legal action to address those accusations? Um, so right now we're currently down here on the ground, ground helping individuals uh, organize, strategize, and then we'll be mobilizing um, and moving forward with several actions, particularly pertaining to um, some of these corruptions in some of these cases. Thank you. And Jesse, can you help to explain the DA's reasoning in the Andrew Brown Jr. case? How could he have come to this conclusion uh, that the shooting was justified? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Uh, what I will say is the DA's job is supposed to be to weigh whether or not there is sufficient probable cause to support 
criminal charges. And at least from the portion of the video that was released, I don't know that we necessarily see it. Um, what we were told was that there was some kind of deadly weapon that was used against police. Uh, but from what we see in the video, we see roughly about five officers with machine guns jumping out of a truck, running up on a car, not announcing themselves, uh, and the car trying to get away. I just want to make it abundantly clear, it is not lawful for police officers to shoot someone just because they are fleeing. That was something that was brought up um, for some strange reason in the DA's address, and I'm not really sure why that uh, communication was put out there. But it looks like uh, Mr. Brown is trying to drive away, and when in driving away and trying to flee, uh, they open fire on Mr. Brown. And we do know from at least one autopsy so far that uh, he was shot in the back of the head, which would also indicate that there was an attempt to depart. So I'm not really sure where he's coming from. I think he's trying to argue that the uh, vehicle was, was the uh, deadly weapon that was being used, but I just don't see that from the video. Well, Kerwin, you all have, uh, it may not be from you all, but a boycott of businesses has been called. What's been your role in that, and what do you think the effectiveness of doing that? How do you actually um, expect to make an impact with a boycott? Um, so particularly my role has been behind the scenes, more of a supportive role, because I wanted to uplift and center the voices, particularly in this community. Um, and so just providing strategies and kind of different meetings and, and different ways and tactics, we can kind of attack the problem from all angles. And so the boycott is extremely important because we know um, when people start losing money, uh, a lot of people really start paying attention, particularly when you're taking money from different cities and counties. Um, and so this boycott is, is will be extremely effective um, because as of right now, um, the protests alone has cost the city um, over $300,000, and we know this is a small community with a small budget. Um, and so by taking the financial stability out of this particular institution that uphold corruption um, on multiple levels, we'll be able to, to really leverage um, the power that the people really have um, to bring those stakeholders to the table to negotiate um, just in equitable terms, and, uh, and it's kind of sad we have to use these type of tactics, guerrilla warfare tactics. Um, but to be honest, we're dealing with a system that that don't play off of principles, and so we got to take our tactics and really strategize um, off of a whole different playbook. Um, so I think it will be extremely effective, um, and it will bring equal stakeholders to the table to really address the problem and root out the biases within this community. Now, Jesse, uh, because the DA has made his decision, what recourse does the family or anyone have at this point, now that the deputies are legally blameless? Well, we still have a federal investigation that is underway, and we'll wait and see kind of what the results are from that. Uh, the family does have the ability to also file a lawsuit, um, but again, these, those lawsuits can be very tricky, particularly if this is an area that is covered by any kind of sovereign immunity. Um, it, it can be very tricky and not necessarily a guarantee for a good outcome. Uh, what I would also say is, normally in these circumstances, what happens is a DA, particularly who is embedded with an office in the sheriff's department, would understand some of the conflict there and get a special prosecutor to come in and do the investigation. Clearly, that's something that the governor's office has asked for. Uh, it seems that he has no intention of doing that, which only clouds more of the transparency that we need for a criminal justice system to operate effectively. Well, Jesse McCoy, Kerwin Pittman, thank you so much for being here and sharing your, your views on this issue. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us.
In Mecklenburg County, the Board of Co County Commissioners, church leaders, and others in the community have taken a stand for public school education. They have demanded that $56 million of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school budget be withheld until the school system creates better education plans for minority students. For more on their reasoning, I'd like to welcome Mecklenburg County Commissioner George Dunlap and Councilman-at-Large Braxton Winston. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. I want to open with you, Commissioner Dunlap. Uh, one of your demands is for a stronger strategic plan with some indicators on it. The Charlotte Mecklenburg school system has said that they have issued a strategic plan and in fact that they have said that um, they have answered a number of questions in a frequently asked questions document. What do you say about that document and about their answer regarding a strategic plan? Well, I think it would be clear to the community if you simply go out on the internet and look at what they call their strategic plan. What we're asking for is a plan that has metrics in it that says what they're trying to achieve, how they plan to do it, and we want indicators to tell us what the progress is toward meeting whatever goals and objectives they are. You know, the thing that really concerned me about this is when we made this request, they immediately went on the defense. What they don't understand is that if they have something that the county commission can buy into, then that helps us support their plan by being able to say, this is what it takes to achieve these objectives. Right now, uh, what they're doing is, is, is they're saying, well, it's not our job to ask. Not your job to ask. Uh, Councilman Winston, um, I would like to ask you, do you understand the points of view of both the commissioners and the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system? Where's the common ground? Do you know? Oh, well, absolutely. Well, I, I'm hoping that we as a city, um, from the city of Charlotte perspective, um, one thing that we're doing right now is going through a comprehensive planning process ourselves. Um, while this is primarily um, a land use um, um, process, um, an important part of this is employing growth strategies that, as, as Commissioner Dunlap said, are measurable. And we can um, um, work with our, our, our counterparts over at the county, um, over at uh, uh, CMS and other um, entities of government to align those, our, those strategic plans so that they are working together. Um, traditionally here um, in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, uh, we have not had that comprehensive nature of the way um, our boards and bodies uh, work together um, and our, our citizens have suffered. Um, so I think this is part of the sausage making, you know, that, that often gets done um, behind closed doors. Um, but I think there's been a commitment um, on, on behalf of, of electeds and, and the constituency at large um, to do some of this work um, more out in the open. I think this is kind of what you're seeing. Um, I, I don't know if uh, Commissioner Dunlap would agree or disagree with that. Is that how you well, see you it, know, Commissioner Dunlap? Well, part part of it is because the community uh, is 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 really interested in what takes place. I, I think people are tired of hearing the excuses. Now is not the time. We just come out of the pandemic. Uh, we're talking about systemic issues that have occurred over a period of time, and so as people keep looking at the progress that's being made, they keep asking the question: How many years must children wait? Research suggests that when a child is behind three years consecutively, they never catch up. I think this is what we see when we see a lot of the people who are rioting and a lot of the uh, discourse that's happening in our community. It's that level of frustration. 
Uh, some people will remember that a few years ago, there was a study done that said that uh, in terms of upward mobility, if you live in Mecklenburg County, we are 50 out of 50 counties uh, communities that were studied. Well, the way to get out of this situation, the, the way to move up is to get an education. And so collectively, I think our community is saying it's time to do that. Absolutely. And we would love to have heard from the school system. We did try repeatedly to reach out to Charlotte Mecklenburg system and to the superintendent, but we have not received any response. So um, we, we would well, love let, let to me, know. Let me just say this, and, and so I, I don't know what strategy there is, but they were invited to come before the Black Political Caucus. They chose not to. They were invited to be on um, a radio show that is uh, non-controversial. They decided to decline that. They were invited to uh, appear with a forum with the um, Charlotte Post. Uh, they they declined that, and now you're telling me they decline you. So so why is it that they can't appear and answer the questions that are being raised in our community? Well, I certainly can't answer that question, but Commissioner Winston, if the commissioners in the school system cannot see eye to eye, it sounds like perhaps behind the scenes there is some work to try to get people on the same page with understanding that the community and the commissioners have a say and that the school board, uh, or rather the CMS uh, system, also has a say and that they should work together. It seems like that might be happening behind the scenes, but you know, if that doesn't happen, what's left for the students? Where do the, where do the children land here? Well, I think, I think you're bringing up a, a, a bigger point here, um, and I'm going to bring out the big C word in terms of consolidation. Um, you know, when I first got um, uh, when I first got uh, elected, uh, one, in one of my first meetings, I, I said, you know, um, Mayberry might be set in North Carolina, but Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, uh, we're no Mayberry, um, and and it, it's it's high time uh, that we uh, we we look at our systems of governance and see, hey, maybe what was working in the past, you know, over the past hundred years, is are not models that we need to depend on for the next hundred years. Um, it, it is very difficult, uh, to be completely honest and frank, for our bodies to work together across from the city, county, um, and CMS um, perspective. And, and again, our, our constituents really suffer. You know, I will go back to CMS. While I, I'm, I'm not an expert um, at, at, at public school policy, I do know that regardless of, of what CMS comes up with in, in terms of trying to fix uh, their purview, um, students are going to suffer, for instance, as we've seen, if, if they remain in a digital divide. Um, if if, if they don't have access in their homes to high-speed internet and, and the ability to use uh, devices as tools. Um, and that's not something that the school board <laughs> can necessarily control. If students can't walk safely uh, from their homes to schools, that's going to be an impediment to them to get in their education. Um, and, 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 and again, those are going to affect our results. But again, if we are not working together across all three bodies to solve these um, uh, problems that fall within and then outside of our, our particular jurisdictions, these problems are going to continue to persist, as, as Commissioner Dunlap um, stated earlier. Um, and I hope, hopefully, this comprehensive planning process um, that we're embarking on uh, from a city perspective can help to bring our, our, our colleagues along. Great, with great hope it does, because no child should have to 
stand still and wait for adults to make up their minds. Every single child's education is precious. How does withholding vital funds from schools that are already struggling after a year of COVID help the children? Well, let me, let me, let me just say this. Um, I was on the school board myself from 1995 to 2008, 13 years. It was then that I got on the county commission and I now chair the county commission. So I've seen budgets for 26 years of CMS. There are former superintendents, African-American uh, as well, who will tell you that we don't have a funding problem. We have a leadership problem. So I, I want you to understand that the person that the board chose to lead the education system of one of the largest school districts in the country doesn't have educational background. His background is that he is a uh, four-year graduate uh, in print journalism. So much so that the board had to get a waiver from the state because the state said he didn't meet the criteria. But once they got again, a waiver. once again, understanding that leadership is key, understanding that it choking is. off the funding to the school systems, how does that help the kids? So, so I want you to understand what we've asked is a plan. They've got sufficient time to present a plan. No funds are being, uh, I mean, the school district isn't being defunded. We're simply saying, we're, we're holding this until we get what we're asking for. Which means they can't use it. They can't use well, those funds. Well, they can't funds. use it. So, so what you're saying is then it's okay that they choose not to develop a plan. That's not it's what not I'm difficult. saying. I, what I say no. is that the funding is needed and apparently, I mean, the kids are suffering. So where can okay, the public step so in? In the last the, 15 seconds, where can the public step so in? They'll get the funding. Just present the plan. It's simple. I hope that uh, all of our bodies can come together, whether it's through our intergovernmental committees um, uh, and, and bringing the, the other towns um, in, in the county together uh, to talk about how do we really um, come together to, to, to come with policy approaches uh, to, to, to uh, uh, solve the problems of our constituents. I think that is the solution here. Councilman Braxton Winston, Commissioner George Dunlap, thank you so much for your time and for explaining. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. A new law that would place rules around how race and history are taught in public schools passed the House 66 to 48 just last week. This is House Bill 324, subtitled An Act to Ensure Dignity and Non-Discrimination in Schools. Here to examine this bill a little further, I'd like to welcome James E. Ford, Executive Director of CREED, the Center for Racial Equity in Education. James, the draft language of the bill is interesting. I'd like to share some of it. It reads, this is, quote, an act to demonstrate the General Assembly's intent that students, teachers, administrators, and other school employees recognize the equality and rights of all persons and to prohibit public school units from promoting certain concepts that are contrary to that intent, end quote. So what are those certain concepts? Well, they name them. And they include, for example, compelling students, teachers, et cetera, to profess belief in the idea that one race or sex is inherently superior to another, that any individual is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. And it also prohibits promotion of these concepts, which includes providing reading lists, 
trainings, workshops, contracting with speakers, et cetera. So James, when we talk about teaching an inclusive history, would any of these things be permissible in your site? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. And secondly, the short answer to that is, uh, I don't really know. And I think that that's ultimately the point is that for uh, teachers, they would be forced to second guess and think twice about things that were formerly formerly unquestionable because they'd be embedded in the standard course of study. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, a lot of this is a reaction to the recently adopted social study standards that have called for a more inclusive set of uh, teaching standards. Uh, but it makes it really difficult to understand whether things like the Naturalization Act of 1790 that prohibited citizenship for anyone who was not a white man of good character or for teaching about the FBI counterintelligence program uh, that tried to prevent the rise of a black messiah, for instance, or residential schools that broke up Indian families and uh, attempted to kill the Indian and save the man. How can you teach concepts like that and still honor this draft bill? It's, 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 it's tough, especially when those concepts are not really debatable. So this is not about facts. It appears to be about feelings, and it's really a straw man fallacy at the end of the day. Well, it seems as I think your perspective is very interesting because it seems as though when you're referencing inherently unequal, superior, or inferior, you're talking about rules and policies in our nation that apply to the inherent inferiority of minorities, but this bill appears to be protecting uh, people who would be accused of being inherently uh, or claiming inherent superiority. So I, I see the, the conflict. Yeah, it just raises a lot of questions for me about who is really subjected to indignity and discrimination in our school system, right? When you look at the data, uh, it's disproportionately uh, students of color who are suspended for the same things as other kids who are under-enrolled in honors and AP courses, who are under-identified for gifted and talented, over-identified for judgmental disabilities, who uh, experience use of force, get piped into the juvenile justice system. So that's a very different picture when you look at that. Uh, and so it, this feels to me what, what Dr. King called, quote unquote, the so-called white backlash. Uh, if, as a thinking person, you can't look at section one, part C and subsection seven and, and see that you can't teach a, uh, a concept that questions whether the United States is truly a meritocracy or whether it's racist and sexist. When you look at the indignities that people of color suffer in every aspect of life, then one must conclude that, oh, well, then it must be people of color, right? Because it surely can't be the system this legislation prohibits uh, that from being even questioned. And so it's not about freedom of thought or uh, intellectual honesty. That's that's masquerading. Uh, it's actually gaslighting. And teachers can't look kids in the face and tell them fat meat ain't greasy. But that's what this legislation uh, attempts to force them to do. Interestingly enough, in the bill, that, that expression, intellectual honesty, is, is named. And it says that this, this is to acknowledge the right of others to express differing opinions and foster and defend intellectual honesty. So that's what, that's what the bill wants to do. Um, let's move on. Uh, let me ask you, do you think this has anything to do with the 1619 Project? Uh, I think that they're related. I think that they are uh, branches that emerge from the same bitter root and ultimately tree. Um, there is a culture of war, right, that has been afoot for a while. And, um, you know, one can't look at the 1619 Project, um, this catch-all phrase <laughs> uh, that's been used, this critical race theory, 
or even frankly, the most recent denial of uh, tenure at, at UNC Chapel Hill to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author uh, and, and uh, you know, sort of innovator of the 1619 Project and not feel that they're connected. The ability to tell the story uh, truly exemplifies the phrase that the pen is mightier than the sword and folks recognize that. And I feel like this is just an outgrowth of, of that concept. How can people maintain their uh, personal dignity when the full truth about American history is taught? I mean, you're a former teacher. How do you protect everyone's dignity? Yeah, you know, because I was always a believer that, you know, everyone deserves to learn um, about themselves. And we all come from great people. So people, folks got to learn how to develop positive racial identities. And that is just that doesn't just include black and brown folk. That's white folk, too. Right. Uh, you know, people got to know how to see themselves uh, individually and as groups in ways that transcend mythologies and pathologies. Um, you know, we've been forced to do it because, you know, most of us didn't learn the full breadth uh, of genius of, of our experience. A lot of those figures were hidden. Um, you know, white folk kind of have to do the same thing. And let me tell you something like white kids, they want to be exposed to the truth. Right. Racism is taught. It's it's not, uh, you know, uh, inherent in anybody. And a lot of this, I feel like, is actually preventing white kids, curiously enough, from really confronting racism and learning the truth as a way of not them adopting their own sense of shame, but I think that it's, it's about protecting the parents and the foreparents from the shame because they're gonna, they, they already are, they're getting older and they're learning these things that they haven't been taught in school and they're starting to indict the communities they come from and say, why didn't y'all tell us these things? Why didn't right. we learn? Right. And there's nothing at that. And I wanna ask a, a big question in our last few seconds. We hear a lot about critical race theory. What is it? <laughs> Well, first of all, let me say this is not about critical race theory, but since you asked, uh, critical race theory is actually a, a, a field of study. Uh, it comes from critical legal studies. It has been innovated by black and brown scholars. It is a reputable field of scholarship that looks at how systemic racism functions in our uh, society, particularly in a post-civil rights era. And it ain't new. It's been around for a couple of decades. But this ain't about critical race theory. This is about co-opting terms. It's a disinformation campaign that seeks to destroy any discussion about the things that we know to be true. Well, James E. Ford, thank you so much for explaining that and sharing your perspectives today on Black Issues Forum. Thanks for having me. Once again, I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.